0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu.
0: And I'm Alex Diamond.
2: And we are the hosts of this special series.
0: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, And fieldwork experiences.
2: This special series centers the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines.
0: Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
2: Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you.
0: Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano-Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
2: And on that note, let's begin.
0: We're beyond thrilled to welcome Dr. Tanya Lee, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. Over as near as I can tell three decades, Tanya's ethnographic research has described the changing lives and livelihoods of rural people in Indonesia, focusing on development, resistance, land reform, rural class formation, uh, struggles over forests and conservation, community resource management, and state organized resettlement. Her writing includes the very influential books, The Will to Improve uh, and Land's End, and her most recent book, Plantation Life, Corporate Occupation in Indonesia's Oil Palm Zone, which was co-written with Pujo Samedi and was just published by Duke University. Plantation Life examines the structure and governance of Indonesia's oil palm plantations, ethnographically describing the exploitative nature of plantation life, that sacrifices villagers' well-being in the name of economic development. Uh, Tanya, first of all, congratulations on a wonderful new book, and thanks so much for taking the time to meet with us. Um, so, just to start off, could could you tell us how and and why you became an ethnographer?
1: I would say it's fascination mainly. You know, I still think it is um, the most interesting. Uh, form of knowledge. Um, And also, I'm pretty keen on anthropology as an academic discipline. I've never really wanted to be in any other field. I guess social history would have been, you know, my nearest choice, but this is so much more interesting. Um, A little bit family background as well. I come from a cosmopolitan family where, you know, speaking multiple languages, learning from other people was pretty much routine in our family. So in that sense, I, you know, I didn't stray too far from things that I knew growing up.
2: Well, that's really interesting. And, you know, um, we'd be curious to hear more about your journey um, after your PhD. Um, You, we've learned that you went into the field of development rather than academia. So we're wondering why make this choice? And um, you know what did you do more specifically in the field of development and how did these experiences end up pushing you back into academic research?
1: Right well I we, you know growing up I grew up uh, partly in Southeast Asia in Singapore looking at the world around me um, you know I, I really wanted to work in the field of development I thought that my task in life would be to somehow improve the world you know address human problems that was my goal and when I finished my first degree in Cambridge I didn't expect to go on to a PhD I went back to Singapore and I worked for a year for the UNHCR this was the time of you know Vietnamese um, boat people and so on I did that and then I did eventually go back to do the PhD when I finished again I had no intention really of having an academic career I thought I My job was to improve the world. And so I had a job for a few years as a manager on a development project with Indonesia. It was a Canadian-run project, run out of a university. And uh, this was a project on environmental management. And my job in the project, among others, was to brief Canadian advisors who were going to Indonesia to work with the new Ministry of Environment and help them to develop laws, policies for environmental assessment, and so on. Um, But the more I worked in this milieu, the more I felt, this is just a very problematic set of relations. There's something so wrong with this picture. You know, on the one hand, the Canadian advisors were clueless about how to operate in that environment. I wasn't convinced that the kind of technical expertise they were offering was really all that relevant to Indonesia at that time and there was just a you know a colonial element to it this advisor counterpart relationship seemed to me very fraught it always was very tense the advisors were always complaining that their counterparts didn't give them enough time and i'm thinking these poor guys working in the ministry they (laughs) they have to babysit a canadian among all of their other tasks so that began my you know long critical hard look at development which eventually became my book, The Will to Improve. But what I realized was that the best way to really understand this phenomenon of development was from outside it. You know, while you're inhabiting the apparatus, your job is to make it run better, you know, solve problems, produce results. But really only from an academic location could I stand back far enough and really you know, do the work that I did in The Will to Improve to ask, what is this apparatus you know where does this will to improve come from how does it work what does it do how does it construct these kinds of colonial relations and these hierarchical relations you know all in the name of, of doing good and helping others so that was the the push for me uh, you know it, it took of decades to realize you know what was you know really to do that critical work that I did in the world to improve but that was what pushed me out of that world and back into academia
2: yeah that's that's really interesting but I would be very curious to know if um was there any specific aha moment where you felt like you had to sort of go to grad school or you know pursue academia as a, as a career
1: or... um by the time I did that development work I already had a phd um, but i, I wasn't um, I wasn't planning on an academic career um, I thought I could you know use that in, in the context of development work but I, I also discovered that you know academic knowledge especially in social sciences and anthropology isn't much valued in the world, world of development or it certainly wasn't at that time even in that project i was under- I, I wasn't really understood Seen as an expert. I thought I had expertise. You know, I spoke fluent Indonesian. I had some things to offer. Um, but apparently, not really. You know, in a sort of technically driven project, um, what I brought uh, was not really considered especially useful. And I thought I'm just not, I'm not a, a good fit here, this world, and also this, you know, this milieu is not really a good use of my skills.
0: I was going to say, I was looking back on, on my notes from The Will to Improve, which I read a couple of years ago, um, but looking back on my notes uh, to prepare for this podcast and, um, y- you know, you sort of very explicitly say, I'm not going, I'm going to be critiquing, I'm not going, this isn't like a public policy document. It's, it's interesting to sort of hear those sort of the, the, the history behind that, um, even though I do think there's a lot of really practical stuff in there. Right.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the, the understanding I came to, in fact, it was, you know, you're asking Sneha about kind of aha moments. One of them came for me when I was, I was already, you know, in the university um, and I was asked to do a consulting report on land reform in Indonesia. And I thought, yeah, well, this is one I really should do. I really am qualified for this. I know a lot about this material. I know all of the activists. I have, you know, I've built up a personal network. I, I know who the resources are. I know who should be part of this conversation, like of, of different consulting contracts, which occasionally came across my desk, you know, like pig farming in China. I thought, no, I don't know anything about that. But this one, I thought I should do this. And what I realized, though, in trying to write that report was that. And it had a visceral effect on me. It's like you really have to start backwards. You have to start from thinking about what is the maximally, what's the most progressive thing that could possibly come out of this? You know, what could the Canadian Development Agency actually do, practically speaking, that would be helpful? You think about like what's the most you could get away with in terms of what you could recommend? and then you kind of work backwards from that to figure out what is the, the data and the analysis which would support that recommendation so everything works backwards from the feasible project you know which is the end point you work back to what then is the data what is the analysis so it's like how do you lead the reader to that point so it's the complete opposite of of, a, of an ethnographic study where you you dive in and you see what's happening and then you figure out what sense to make of it. And you're not driven by that telos. At the end of the day, there has to be a recommendation of, therefore you should do this. And so in writing the will to improve, uh, you know, which is really trying to stand back from that development apparatus and, and ask those, you know, fundamental questions. What is this apparatus? What does it do? How does it work? Um, If I had had to end it with a statement or with a, you know, a sort of appendix which said, and this then is what you should do, development agencies of the world, it's like a performative contradiction. I've already unraveled the entire apparatus and now I'm trying to fix it. You know, it just wouldn't have made any sense. And if in that obligation, which I had in the consulting report and constrained my analysis, I was free from because I was sitting in a university and I could write The will to Improve as an academic study of this apparatus, which could be revealing. I mean, many practitioners have written to me. They still do, actually. I sometimes get, you know, an email saying, I just read your book. Like, you described my world. This is exactly, you know, the the dilemma I face in my daily activities, running a development project in Nepal or whatever. And I think yeah, I I got it. You know, I did actually describe their world, I didn't fix it for them. But they see themselves in this picture in a way which can actually be um, quite helpful, uh, even to a development practitioner who can't fix the machine, like even to know that the conundrums you're facing are real ones, right? They're not just because you're failing somehow. They're intrinsic contradictions. Yeah.
0: You know, you talked about the so the the time it took you to come to to those arguments, um, and one thing that I that I find really uh, unique um, and um, impressive in your research is is sort of the way that you're able to track, uh, you know, two decades of change in the Sulawesi Highlands, right? Which is um, kind of the the topic of lands ending, it it covers basically 20 years, right? How people's lives change, um, based on, uh, you know, the introduction and the the spread of capitalist relations. Um, so what, what does a two decade research project look like? I mean, why, why did you, why did you choose to do that? I, it's difficult to imagine that at the start of this, right, that you had this vision, Mm of what was going to happen. It's impossible to imagine. Um, How often were you going back? Uh, And and how did your relationship with participants change?
1: Right. So, you know, there's two books in Sulawesi, right? So the the process for The Will to Improve was quite different. Like that was a book kind of, in a way, I would say chasing an idea. It was my attempt to work out this idea of The Will to Improve and the sites that I chose to write about with those where I thought I had some, um, I could you know, bring some empirical material to bear. And so it wasn't really a fieldwork driven book. The fieldwork component was just a few months, although it did involve you know, two decades of being in and around the development apparatus. So that's kind of long term in a different way. Um, you know, the, the canvas was a big one, and the cast of characters, people I knew and talked to, conversations, events, you know, were, were spread over two decades in a loose way that I pulled together in that book. Um, Landsland was completely different. Um, the canvas was a small one, right? It was uh, focused on just a few villages, and um, in the end, just a few hamlets. And I started this book as a about this research as a postdoc. So just after leaving that development project that I mentioned earlier, the environmental project, I thought, well, you know, Indonesia's environmental issues are fundamentally agrarian ones. Um, This work that the Ministry of Environment was doing, kind of driven by Canadian and other foreign expertise, was focused on urban issues, pollution, and so on. But you know, Indonesia was and is fundamentally agrarian country, 50% of the population still live from agriculture. So I, I wanted to kind of put myself in an agrarian milieu and uh, and see what was happening there. So I started off just really sort of on the rebound from that development project, thinking I'm going to go to the countryside and see what environmental issues are actually emerging. Um but then you know, after the first few visits, uh, which was you know, during that postdoc period, I realized that something you know, huge was happening in terms of you know, the introduction of a new cash crop, cocoa, the privatization of land. And I you know, I think it's a classic feature of the one year ethnography, the kind of classic field work and dissertation fieldwork. People often feel that something momentous is happening while they're in the field that everything is changing so it's it's not it's not an unusual sense but because I kept going back I never had a very long period you know my shortest was two weeks the longest was 12 weeks but over 20 years going back every two or three years I I realized that yeah something really was happening here and it was something that I would say scholars have been interested in for decades, this question of the, you know, the origins of capitalism, the emergence of capitalist relations, how do societies transform themselves, and that I actually had an opportunity to study that somehow in real time, you know, not in the period of a year, but each time I went back the debate had moved on. So in the early 90s, it was over, you know, the adoption of cocoa and the initial privatization of land, how that was done and the struggles over land. And then by, you know, five or six years later, it was um, issues of land selling and land accumulation, the emergence of agrarian classes. And then later still, it was around the kind of credit and debt relations and the the basically the the class divisions becoming more visible both economically but also socially as families that used to spend more time together started to take a distance and you know these were siblings and cousins living next door. So basically it was you know it was just a fascination of the opportunity to to track this in real time um, visit by visit. So as a set of relations, of course, you know, that, you know, in the period of 20 years, people I knew as teenagers became young adults and had their own families. So that's, you know, part of this, you know, your people in your field site grow up. A lot of the older people I knew at the beginning died, you know, during the period of 20 years. My, the people I used to hang out with and whose company I enjoyed, they died off. And so then, then the, the younger generation, you know, came into their own. So there's that kind of change in the population itself and in me. You know i went from being 30 to being 50 during that period um but then there was there was um you know there was something about going back other people have written about this you know the kind of welcome you get when you return to a field site my relations were not as intimate as i would have liked them to be simply because of language which i don't disguise in the book right i never really mastered the lao Tzu language I had to work with an interpreter. Um, I did learn a few hundred words and often I understood a lot of what was being said, but I was never able to have the kind of really sort of intimate and casual chit chat that I can have with people in Indonesian, for example. So there was that distance. Um, nevertheless, I kept showing up and they kept welcoming me back and saying, ah, here she is again. She's come for a visit. You know, let's, let's have a cook up or something. You know, they, they, they definitely. Uh, became familiar with my presence and over the years, um, you know, comfortable with it. So that's, I know one of the things that that struck me though, um, just to end on the sort of the long term is, you know, when I, when I started to write the book and I thought about this transformation that I had witnessed, uh, one thing it did really alert me to is that if someone was to go to that area on the time of my last visit let's say around um 2010 something that was it um and and ask people about the past you know like what did you used to do before you grew cocoa you know it really made me wonder about would it actually have been possible for um highlanders to reconstruct the old life you know the old land system the old food system and tell this eager young anthropologist about the past. Um, My guess is that it would be really hard for them to do that. And so it did make me pause a bit about our ideas about sort of social history and, and what we can actually do with interlocutors in the present when we're interested in the past. I did feel that the fact that I had been there back in 1990. And so when I wanted to talk to people about the past, I had all of the key um, I knew not only the words to describe the old land system and the old food system and so on but I had also knew the events and the kind of the characters and so I felt that I could talk about the past in a completely different way because I had been there than I would have been able to do had I just arrived and asked a bunch of questions so it was it, that was really an interesting kind of Element of this for me, you know, thinking about what does it mean to have actually been there over a long period.
0: That engagement over time, I think uh, it's. I mean, that's why I wanted to ask about it. Is I, I think it's. Um, I don't know that it's like the only ethnography that does that, but it's it's pretty unique and it makes it special and and sort of the kind of insights that that you're able to give on sort of all the different ways that people's lives and relations and and local culture and, um, social stratification change. um, it's, it's really, uh, it's really insightful, really interesting. Um, it's sort of one other element of that book that, that I found, um, really in kind of inspiring as a model, uh, thinking of, of my own research as well, which, which, uh, you know, I, I fit into that group of, uh, graduate students doing dissertation research who, <laughs> who think they're witnessing something momentous, um. But I really liked you. You just referred to it as the the cast of characters, um. In the book, I think you call it like the dramatis personae. I'm not even sure how to pronounce that, um. Which the sort of the, the whole and the analysis of the book is rooted in uh sort of a bounded group of people and you're very explicit about that and sort of all the analysis takes off from these characters you know not necessarily you know obviously there are thematic concepts but it's it's rooted in people's lives um, so how did you how did you come to the decision to do it like that why write in this way um, and how did you choose uh, who to focus on right
1: yes so I would say I'm not natural storyteller i'm not i never thought of myself as very skilled at that i think as an ethnographer my main skill so far has been to kind of work between theory and ethnography in a kind of transparent and coherent way and i think that's if people read my work that's usually what they get out of it um but i felt that for land's end you know there is a story to tell here and how to tell the story. I spend a lot of time thinking about that, and really trying to reinvent myself as a better storyteller than I have been until now. And so I, you know, I like to read novels. I also watch a lot of murder mysteries. <laughs> and you know, one of the one of the features of storytelling is that it has a limited cast of characters because uh, a reader can't really grasp. You know 50 people they can only really keep in their mind you know a dozen at most if you want those people to have life you know to have a context to have a character to have a personality and so i i did i did really try to think hard about that and it was very deliberate so then once i had decided that i have to do it this way it has to it has to have people in it and it can't have too many then I thought about, well, who are the people I knew the best, you know, about whom I had um, more depth of, of character and, you know, I knew their family trees and who they were related to. And so all of the characters are real, like no one is a composite, but a lot of a lot of other people who I also knew are edited out. Right. So it's 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 a deliberately reduced um, canvas in order to be able to bring those people to life.
0: Was, it, was there a point where you decided, okay, this is how I'm going to do this while you were still engaging in fieldwork and, and you thought, okay, I'm going to do a revisit and I'm going to focus on these families or did it emerge sort of after the fieldwork?
1: Right. Well, so during the fieldwork, one thing I realized was that my initial fieldwork in the early years, in the early nineties was very broad because I was trying to get a grasp of the whole ecosystem there right the mountains the coast what was the relationship between them like why were these people living up a hill like who how did they relate to these other folks so I was moving around a lot and I I was visited probably 20 or 30 different hamlets you know up and down the hills so I realized that you know that gave me something useful in terms of an understanding of the entire zone but my relationships were very thin I didn't know anyone very well Then I, one of the next longer field work periods probably one where I stayed a couple of months. I said, I've got to stay in one place. I've got to just dig in somewhere and get to know people better. So I did that. And that's the place that I eventually called, I gave the pseudonym Sibogo. I think. That was where I got to know people. I got to know people's family trees. You know, I could recognize the children. I knew who, you know, how people were related and something about their family histories and so you know there, there is a kind of a, a stage in that fieldwork where i realized that i needed density you know what i would call density of knowledge about people and their lives and their relationships one to the other so that was a field work moment you know when i realized i had to stop moving around and just dig into two or three places but then when i i came to writing um i i kind of refined even further right because actually you know So most of the hamlets that I visited don't appear at all. Some of them appear briefly, Um, but I, I, you know, I I decided to write most about the places that I knew best and the people that I knew best. So that was a, a, a question, a writing question. Well, where, where, where's my best data? You know, where is the, where can I give the most richness and context? And that's what I'll write about and I'll let all the rest go. So that, you know, it's in between the fieldwork strategy and the writing strategy that I figured out um, this more reduced canvas. You know, all those other people and all those other visits and all the other places I knew, you know, they do figure in the sense, you know, it enabled me to write confidently about these few people and these couple of hamlets because I knew it was you know, it was grounded in a lot more knowledge, but, um, but this was the place that I could really write about in an interesting way. And I have to say, I've been really thrilled by the way that it's worked. Um, I've had, you know, students, I, I teach with this book, and actually many people teach with this book, partly because it, it has people in it, and students really respond to that. And, I, and I've had students bounce up to me after class and say, you know when so-and-so did so-and-so, and I'm thinking... Gosh, these people are real to you. Like, you know, you you're you're interested in their lives. It's it's kind of taken off, you know. They actually are people that you are thinking about the the dynamics of the situation through the lens of particular people that you can somehow. Um, I don't exactly identify with, but identify at least, you know, know who they are, you know, begin to think about what they were dealing with, what was the situation in their lives. So I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I was surprised at how well it worked, you know, having decided to take that tack that it actually was successful. Um, but I don't think it works for every kind of writing, right? I would say plantation life doesn't have the same uh density of people. I We do, I did use the same, you know, we did use the same sort of tactic of, of developing a few characters, but I don't think it has quite the same um, focus. Yeah.
2: But I, I really like the... Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I really like the phrase um, identify and not identify with. I think that's uh, that's really profound and very useful for Thinking about what makes good ethnographic writing when you're writing about um, about you know so, social groups of a variety of kind and um, yeah the ethics of writing that that's really really uh, well put thank you for that I'm, I'm definitely going to use it um, but <laughs> but zooming out a little bit uh, we love asking this question on on our podcast because it yields some really great answers but in the couple of decades in Sulawesi, so what's the one funny, embarrassing, or interesting field work story that you have
1: not written about as yet?
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't
1: know. I, I saw this question in your list and I, I wondered what to talk about, but um, you know, I think I would talk about um, interesting rather than funny or embarrassing. Um, and it, it just, to me, it was just fantastically moving. And it had to, it is in the context of Land's End. And it had to do with my um, uh, interpreter friend, buddy, who I call in the book, Rina, um, who I became very fond of. And, uh, you know, she was a coastal uh, person. She had a market stall, you know, super smart, not very well educated, I think only primary education, but just a smart, charming, competent, lovely woman. Uh, Exactly my age, as it turned out. And uh, she had the usual coastal sort of suspicion of Highlanders, that they were backward, that they were dirty, that they were primitive and so on. You know, she carried all the baggage of all the coastal people towards the Highlanders. So for her to come with me on these Highland hikes, um, you know, was a little bit scary for her at times as well you know afraid of their magic or afraid of the landscape but you know she was very plucky and very mature as well and you know she came along and she made the whole thing work you know it was great but one on one particular occasion we were uh up near the mission station which we hardly ever visited because i was really afraid of uh, anyone assuming that i was part of the missionary operation being another white person so i really stay at a wide earth so that I wouldn't be seen as kind of taking my orders from or checking in with the mission. But anyway, for once we were there and there was a woman there who had, who told this story. So she, first of all, she was uh, helping out at the clinic the missionaries had started off and the missionaries had figured out how to write Lao J language and she had learned to read it. And so for Rina, this idea that a Highlander, as she put it, like a red mouth lady, you know, somebody who'd been chewing beetle, you know, signal of backwardness, was able to read the instructions on um, a package of antibiotics, like take this three times a day until they were done, you know, in loud language, and she could read it. For her, that was just like, amazing. She said, even people on the coast, you know, they don't even, don't even know what to do with antibiotics. And here she is, this Red Routh woman, you know, she's reading and she's giving the right instructions to the, the Highlanders about how to take their medication. But then this woman had gone to the city. One of her Highland neighbors had a terrible gash with a knife and it had gone, it had gone septic or, I don't know, possibly gangrions, so I don't know what, but it was very, she was very sick and she was airlifted by the missionaries to the hospital. And this young woman went with her and she told the story about how plucky she'd been in the hospital. Here, you know, I told these nurses in the hospital, he said, I don't know anything. Like, we're from the sticks. I don't know. You'll have to show me, like, what do I do in the bathroom? <laughs> like, how do I get food? You know, like, basically, but, you know, for Rena, she was just so amazed and awed by the pluckiness of this young woman who had adventured off to the city and figured out how to take care of her her charge, you know, her her patient. Um yeah, I just thought that was just very wonderful because it it showed that the even, you know, prejudice uh is not just things that, you know, outsiders, white people, anthropologists take to the field, you know, the the scene in Land's End was full of prejudice, deep prejudice. And uh and Rena shifted her ground, you know, she she learned something new and she told the story with such excitement. You know, She repeated the excitement of the woman who would recounted the story about how amazing it had been to discover all these new things. I thought that was kind of cool. I really
0: liked that moment.
1: Yeah, that's really, on.
2: really interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us.
0: Yeah, that is a, that is a wonderful story um, and very, very telling. Um, you know, thinking about the divisions that you, that you describe. Um, so you mentioned the new book, uh, "Plantation Life," um, which which is co-written with Pujo Semedi, um, but it's not actually just a collaboration between the two of you, right? There's there's actually I think you said something like 180 students who also participated, contri- contributing fieldwork. Um, so we we go from a book that has the you know the sort of the classic model of lone ethnographer. For a really long extension of time to now, this book, which has, uh, you know, the I don't, I don't know if we're trying to to track records, but uh, about as many ethnographers as you can imagine in in one book. Um, so, how, <laughs> how did this work? Um, why why did you decide to do it like this? Um, and how do you think it affected the final project?
1: Right. Okay. So my previous collaborations uh, and the one, I mean, Land's End was very solo, but Will to Improve wasn't, right? I did some of that uh, research together with um, activists in um, Central Sulawesi, and I loved that collaboration. That seemed to me to, uh, you know, very great in the sense that they they are what I would call scholar activists. They they felt that they should they have to do research in order to be good activists, they were opposed to what they call action in a vacuum, you know, where you just, you know, you think you know, what's good for villages, and you too set out to improve them without, without doing your research and figuring out like, what is it actually that they're facing? And you know, what do they want to do? So I loved working with them. And that collaboration produced uh, a dynamic in which we recognize different positionalities and different strengths and a kind of division of labor. So after doing joint research with that group, um, particularly Yais and Tanamadeka, I I would come home and write my academic articles and they would go into their own province and raise hell. Like they would do their work as political activists and I would do mine as a scholar. And the collaboration was great like they could use the data that we had uh, generated from our joint research for their political work and i could use it for my academic work and we all learned a lot you know from the collaboration but we recognized we had very different stakes so that was one kind of collaboration and for me it, it solved a lot of problems because i didn't it's not my job to go and do politics in sulawesi it's their job but if i can help them by, you know, research training and joint research. And, you know, um, then that's, that was a, I felt that was a good contribution, you know, to each their strength with Pujo. It was different. I, his he's much more like me, right. He's in the university and he's an anthropologist and he's, tr- he has been trying to rebuild anthropology and particularly agrarian studies in Indonesia. After, you know, the catastrophe of the new order and the um, evacuation of kind of critical research from the universities uh, or even proper empirical research in the universities, you know, things became very project driven, very, you know, a lot of scholars get involved in um, doing contract research for development agencies and and he he's a real scholar. he he wants to do proper research, and he wants to be part of an anthropology department where students are trained to do proper research. but he was lacking in resources, and uh, so that was I thought, okay, so you know this this could be a good collaboration here because he had a real vision of what it would take to generate and to, to um, develop a whole new generation of young scholars in Indonesia who had some experience in anthropology and in rural research, and some of whom, not all of whom, um, you know, with further enormous support from Pujo could go on and get master's degrees and get PhDs and eventually come back and be faculty in his department, <laughs> which he has succeeded in doing amazingly so he had a vision of what it would take to rebuild anthropology and i could be part of that because you know uh, we developed this research project which had room for lots of researchers you know lots of undergraduates got their feet wet with research there many of them went back and did subsequent research so for him the a key part of the collaboration was the training and the 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 uh, opportunities for new Indonesian scholars. So we've just um, launched a website um, for the plantation Life book at Gajamada at his university. and you'll see there's there's a list of about fifty research dissertations, um, undergraduate theses, masters theses, and so on, which were conducted under the umbrella of this project. So that's the kind that's what. It's most important to him, I think, about the collaboration was the opportunities provided for others. Typical of Puja always creating opportunities for other people. Um, but for me, the collaboration, you know, had another, another dynamic, right? I mean, it meant working with him and actually uh, the fieldwork was quite easy because, um, you know, we both kind of, we both worked pretty hard and sort of dig in and there was often a good dynamic of interviews if we were together. Um, You know, we each had our, our styles and then uh, often we worked apart, um, but we knew the same folks. It's just that I would go and visit someone, so he would go and visit somebody else. And, you know, so it, it was a good and easy collaboration at the field work stage. The writing is another challenge, right? That's when you actually have to, um, think about, well, what did we learn here? What sense do we make of it? And actually, did we make the same sense of it? You know, we, we both read the transcript of an interview or we were both present at an interview and what are we each picking up? You know, what are we noticing? What are we uh, taking away from this? And what kind of analysis do we want to present? So that whole process of collaborative writing is a whole other level of, um, you know, a joint reflection, thinking, um, as Pujo said, you know, we 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 knit a whole, oh, let's say, like, you know, what, how did you describe it? It's like, you know, we wove a whole cloth here, and then, hey, we took it all apart again, and then we wove it again in a different style. Like, you know, that whole process of writing and rewriting, which we all probably do as individuals, but when you're doing it with another person, you know, there's a there's more to it. So it was, um, it was uh complex i would say ultimately um extremely rewarding um not easy um but uh we're still friends <laughs> and we still are um, you know working together i would say yes
0: that's yeah. that's what sneha and i say when when people ask us about our collaboration on this on ethnographic marginalia we're <laughs> 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 at least we're still friends oh, just kidding no, uh, one one thing that um, that you're explicit about in the book actually it's how it's how you start and end the book really. Um, at the end is the, the methodological appendix. Um, there's there's reflection on sort of the the different positions that that you and Pujo come from, uh, as well as even the the students who participate in the research. Um, so what what did you learn based on these distinct perspectives? Uh, in terms of how each of you interpreted things you saw, but also um, something that that you talk about in a couple places, um, the different ways that uh, interlocutors um, from different social positions reacted to both you and Pujo and and maybe also the students.
1: Yeah, right. Um, So at the level of the fieldwork, I would say You know, both I think anthropologists, ethnographers, know this, right? I mean, similarity and difference have their pluses and minuses. You know, there were things that that I noticed that Pujo didn't. You know, he took for granted, and other things that you know he clued into immediately um, that I wouldn't have picked up on. You know, so maybe any two ethnographers would there that, that would be something of that. Like if you work with another colleague in the field, even if you think you're similarly trained and similarly positioned, you're you're going to pick up on different things. But um, definitely uh, there was something very, um, there's something very powerful in, in the two of us kind of comparing notes on what we took away. And you know, I one, I give one example or we gave it, I don't know if it's in the beginning or the end, but our first morning in the plantation, and Pujo notices that the, there's a whole bunch of people at the coffee shop near the plantation gates, and they're all wearing their uniforms, and it's 10 o'clock in the morning. And he's appalled. He said, Such indiscipline. You know, here they are, you know, basically performing their breach of plantation rules by being there in their working uniforms, spending their morning lounging away at a coffee shop instead of working. And I don't know if I would really have noticed that, like, you know, the uniforms, the coffee shop, the time of day. But to him, that spoke volumes about plantation discipline and, and how it was working. So that was one thing. Another thing, and I don't know if I would have picked up or uh, it would have taken me a while. Um, another thing is I, I realized that he hated to be in the plantation core. It gave him the creeps. I, it, and I, it, I asked him, like, why don't you you know, you always want to run off up river. Like he was very happy hanging out in the Diak hamlets, upriver, river, um, but he really hated to be in the plantation core. And I, so I had to probe that with him. Like, what is it that you don't like here? Because like, you know, we, we had to do a, we did a bit of a spatial division and he he chose to work more in the up river areas among the smallholders. And I said, well, okay, I'll hang around in the core. I'm fine with that. But why did he hate it so much? And it was because, from his own uh, you know, previous research and also the findings of plantation life, um, he said, these people are all thieves, like they don 't want us here they're hostile they're afraid we're going to discover their secrets, and it's an uncomfortable atmosphere because of that. you know I'd much rather be in a diet hamlet where they're happy to hang out with me and chat. He just something about the, the kind of the tension. In the plantation zone around what we describe in the book is, you know, the dynamics of, of you know a plantation as an occupying force, plus all of the complicity, the collaboration, the collusion, the theft, all of the um, texture of relations in the plantation, uh, which we analyze in the book and which became one of the key ways we made sense of the plantation world, viscerally. That just gave Pudu the creeps and he didn't want to be there if he could delegate it to me right so you know there was you know there was that kind of, of uh, possibility as well you know that we could we could be in different places and actually have quite different visceral reactions to them so uh, yeah I recommend uh, collaborative work if you can find a good collaborator I would say you know Pudu and I are not necessarily on the same page you know in all of our politics but um one thing about him is that he's he's an empiricist you know he he believes in um research you know in like well let's go and investigate let's check it out you know if these are the facts you know so i like that that makes it easy to work with someone because um because he was very driven to actually try to get to the bottom of things and to understand these dynamics so um yeah it that was Uh, you know, I I guess I'm trying to elaborate on your question of what did we learn based on these distinct perspectives. In terms of how Jalakit has interacted with us, um, you know, Pujov uh, describes his own relationships, and I I observed his style as much more conversational, low-key, you know, he'd launch a topic of conversation, perhaps, or sometimes he wouldn't, he would appear to be just chilling and wait and see what would emerge. And I think that is his fieldwork style. Um, I would be um, much more direct, you know, I would launch a topic of conversation, I would ask questions. And as a result, you know, a lot of things came out and Pujo said to me once that I could never ask those questions in the same direct way that you do, it just wouldn't be appropriate for me to do that but they expect it from you, you know, you're a foreigner, you're going to be nosy. You're going to ask questions and they're fine with it. What's more they like you and they want to help you. So they're happy to spend an hour talking to you. Um, and they're willing to give you their time. You know, there's a little bit of the white person, charisma element, um, but also, you know, people did get used to me and, you know, quite like me as well. You know, I'm not a very difficult person and, and, so he could see that as well. there was something it's it's partly a racial dynamic. it's to do with the insider outsider, it's partly our personalities, but these are all things that we bring to the field situation, um, which you know produced different kinds of conversation and different kinds of learning I would say.
2: yeah, I mean, maybe to uh, go back to the writing bit a little bit but also fold in what you just said um. I found it very interesting that you, while while discussing the joint writing process in the book, you mention um, your efforts in trying to avoid what you call the colonial dynamic. Um, So can you just like elaborate on that a little more? What does a colonial dynamic in collaborative writing look like? And maybe just some practical tips uh, if you'd like to give to researchers engaging in collaborative research and writing?
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, so right at the beginning of this, I'd already known Pujo for some time, but we hadn't worked together on something as intense as this. And I asked him, you know, when we planned this research and we applied for the research grant, I said, "Pujo, what do you want out of this as, you know, as a, why are you doing this? Why do you want to do this with me? And he said he wanted to have a proper collegial relationship. Um, He wanted to be a sort of a full collaborator. He said, in his words, I don't wanna be the research assistant or the native informant. And, you know, sadly that had been his experience of some previous um, research with uh, foreigners that comes under the label of collaboration, but in which he felt that it wasn't his intellectual contribution that was valued, but rather his, you know, his facilitation, you know, organizing things, making things work, you know, the research assistant function. Um, and sometimes a native informant function, you know, where he was asked to explain something um, to the outsiders, and he didn't want that. So I said, okay, so that's great. So if that's what you want, I'm in, let's give it a try. You know, let's see if we can do this. Can we conduct this research without reproducing that dynamic in which you play the role of the research assistant or the native informant? And that was always in the back of my mind. Like at every stage, it was like, that's not what we're doing here. You know, Um, I would say where that became to me most crucial was at the writing stage, because that's where, again, the risk emerged that I would take over, you know, that my skills in analysis, which Pujo is the first to recognize, you know, would, would make him defer to me. It's like, you know, yeah, it must be that way. You say it's that way. It's like, no, we're not doing that. It's okay. Let's just go back to the beginning. Like, you know, what are we trying to say here? What is our point? You know, what is our data? Can we demonstrate that? And, and having that as a conversation, you know, repeated, you know, really, I would say line by line through the book as a discussion between us about what we were trying to say rather than, you um, you know me say it and then him uh agree to it so that's it it, it it took continual effort right also because of language we're writing in english you know it's my uh, it's the master language i'm i'm writing in my own language had we been writing in indonesian i think the, di- the writing dynamic would also have been different i would have been feeding ideas and he would have been formulating sentences right but we did it this way around so uh, yeah, it's it's something that you have to be just continually vigilant about who is, what is the nature of the contribution, and what's the relation, what's the nature of the dialogue. You know, are you still in dialogue, a two-way learning, or is there one person who's dominant and another person who's conceding um, ground? So it, it it it's hard work, but boy was it rewarding (laughs) there's no i mean i i look at every page in the book and i can actually remember where we were you know sometimes we were on zoom and sometimes we were sitting at my dining room table and um in the early days we were sitting in his house in gajamada and we were different places where we've you know at at different stages of the writing we've been physically located and i remember talking about that yeah you know that was that conversation when we thought about this and we came up with that idea and this is how it developed so it's you know it's a long haul it's, it's not as it's not a simple thing um to collaborate with another person but but it it i i definitely feel that um the sum is um greater than the parts right there's no way i could have written this book on my own nor could he uh it really is the result of the two of us putting our heads together so i'm pretty proud of that actually um it's and i think he is as well i know he is he you know he feels that it's his book you know he he feels he's an author which is exactly what we were aiming for
2: yeah i mean that's great and you know just to um shift gears a little bit i want to ask you about what you're working on now but not before telling all of our listeners to pick up the book (laughs) it's it's such a great book and such a, a great example of collaborative ethical um, Co writing, it's really um, an inspiration in that regard, especially now that we've heard you talk about the backstory so eloquently. But yeah, um, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time and uh, we do want to let you go soon, but not before asking you what you're working on now, and I guess what do we
1: read by you in the nearish future? <laughs> right. Uh, well, no more books for a while. I, I feel like every book I've written, each of the ones you've discussed today, you know, will to Improve Lands and Plantation Life, they each took me about a decade. Uh, you know, it's a big deal. Like we started on Plantation Life. We started the research in 2009 and, and the writing took a long time. And so I'm, I don't have energy for a new book right now. Um, but what we are hoping to do is actually to... Uh, do a lot of work with plantation life um, politically. You know the the scene we describe in Indonesia is a complete catastrophe. Um, Pujo feels that I feel that our findings show that, and so uh, to the extent possible, we plan to raise hell. <laughs> we you know we we want to try to provoke um, more debate in Indonesia about the expansion of the plantation format, it's already taken up 22 million hectares. Mm -hmm. A third of Indonesia's farmland is now dedicated to this. And, you know, that's at least 15 million people are living under what we have now understood to be a regime of corporate occupation. This is a massive transformation of a large agrarian society which we have studied and about which we have something to say and we want to say it in a whole range of different formats and contexts so that different people can hear it and think about it so um we're going to put more effort more deliberate effort than i've certainly done with my previous books to to sort of outreach i would say um you know the other books did get picked up by practitioners to some degree you know but um with this book, it's going to be very deliberate and we're going to work on it. You know, we've already started a website at Gajamada to uh, introduce the book and we've done some short videos. We can do a whole lot more about that. And um, if we are able to do some book launches in person in Indonesia, uh, in the main plantation areas, uh, those kinds of events, especially with a foreign scholar, you know, let's just be direct about this. Um, get more attention uh, than they would if he was doing this on his own. And uh, we, he, he, is very convinced. Prudhoe is very convinced that the, the key to our being able to do anything useful with this book politically, has to do with its our scholarly credentials. That we have to produce present this as a book of scholarship. It's based on research. We didn't make this up. Like, this is, in fact, what is happening. You know, we have to be very scholarly and empirical if we're to be effective politically. Because if we just come across as, you know, um, the way that NGOs are characterized as kind of Western and hostile, and they don't understand the dynamics of Indonesia, and they just come in, you know, loving the orangutan, and they don't understand about the need for development. And, you know the pushback against activism on the plantation front is very well rehearsed in Indonesian political um, and policy and government circles. So if we're going to get beyond that, it will be because we present ourselves as serious senior scholars, you know, who have done solid research, but we still want to do the outreach, right? So it's like using the scholarship to conduct the politics. And that's what we're gonna to try to do in the next couple of years and, and really give it a, a go and see what we can do.
0: Well, Tanya, thank you. That's that's a wonderful answer. Um, and though we've focused and, and tend to focus on this podcast on the sort of the ethnographic experiences and methodology behind research, um, it really, Plantation Life really is a very politically important book. Um, and not just for Indonesia. I mean, I'm I'm speaking from from Colombia, which I think is the world's fourth largest producer of palm oil, and and in your right. your book is just really relevant to to the little that I know about uh, about palm oil plantations here, and probably plantations right. in general. Um,
1: I mean, this, as as a side note, since this is an ethnography podcast. It is ultimately an ethnography of plantation life right i mean it's it's its focus is on the character of everyday life in the plantation zone so we really are trying to use ethnography uh for political purposes but it is an ethnography it's it's not a it's not a work of um you know that's that's the content you know if you've read it you you have read it i know that that's the content right it is it is a, a, a glimpse into plantation life and from, um, and from many different theory.
0: perspectives. From many different perspectives, which I think is a major strength of the book. Um, well, Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with us. Um, we're absolutely thrilled to, to hear more about your experiences as, as people who have long followed uh, and been inspired by your work.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It's been fun to talk to you and um, I'll, uh, I'll look out for the podcast when it comes out. And if anyone's interested, you can just uh, uh, look for Plantation Life at uh, Duke University Press. It's easy to find. Thank you.